You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. everyone's super excited to get the opportunity to speak with Amon and Christina today. There's the reason that we wanted to do this episode. It's the reason that we reached out to them in that so many of the people, actually, when we did a survey of our community, so many people are on the path to financial independence and they're doing this in the context of having a family. Their family is on their ride with them. Their family is supporting this effort. And I think many times when you look to the people that you've seen that have done it, there's this character that this is just for maybe single individuals or individuals that didn't have these other quote unquote restraints, right? And, and I think it just requires a reframe. And even more than that, it requires knowing that there are other individuals that have trailblazed this, that have done this. You're not alone. This is doable. It's replicable, but it may look slightly different. There may be other considerations that you need to think about. And so if we can find individuals that have done this, what can we pull from their story? What can we incorporate into our own life to see those similar results? Amon and Christina have an incredible story. They just recently quit their federal jobs, retired to Portugal with their two daughters. This is a family that has embraced geo-arbitrage. They embraced you know, frugality, house hacking, just all these incredible tips. And they can bring some of those unique tips to our audience to share with us so that you can take action on them. Very excited to see where this conversation goes. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing quite well. And yeah, you certainly covered the full gamut there. We right? don't even That's, need to record. No, we don't, we really don't. <laughs> no, this is a remarkable story. And, and FI is for families. There's that caricature that this is for single people in their 20s. And that is absurd. And I think Aman and Christina are going to show how they've done this so effectively. And personally and selfishly, I am so endlessly curious about their move to Portugal. Lisbon is a place that my wife, Laura, and I have earmarked as, hey, maybe that's a possible future life plan. It's interesting that that is the spot that they pick. Selfishly, I cannot wait to dive into this. So with that, Aman and Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. That was such a beautiful intro. <laughs> you are welcome. Thanks We're really for... happy to be here, though. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is exciting. So I wanted to start with your story. And in particular, you're on the path to financial independence and you're doing this with a family. But financial independence is, you know, this metric that you've hit, but it doesn't start there. And, and since you're doing this as a family, at what point did you realize that this was a goal for your family? That's really what I'm curious about. Well, you know, it goes back to an experience that I had at work. This was about eight years ago. I was at work and I had received an award for my length of service with the federal government. It was the 10-year certificate. And at this ceremony, there was another individual that had gotten an award for 40 years of service. It was a turning point for me because when I had received my award, they handed it to me like it, was, like it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it paled a comparison to someone that had been there for 40 years. And I just remember thinking to myself, I can't be here for another 40 years. I don't want a piece of paper to represent my life. And what if, I think what if it, it had been a that... watch? Would this story have been entirely different? <laughs> it could have been a brand new Tesla. It would not have been worth it. Because I felt like I was giving up so much of my life in my cubicle. 
And so I came home and me and Christina really started to talk about this idea of retiring early, of taking control of our life. And that was the turning point. Wow. So that was eight years ago. That really predates much of the modern FI movement. How did you guys have the mental wherewithal to even think about retiring early at that point? I think we've always been good about just saving and investing in general. And like you said, there was no real label to it when we started, right? It was just sort of like Aman came home one day and he was like, I want to retire before I'm 40. And it was like, whoa, we'd never heard of that really. You know, we'd never seen other people do this. And like we said, we have two daughters. So even adding that onto it was sort of like, okay, well, well, what do we do? You know, it was just about really putting plans in place and and having this goal in mind and creating really these mini steps of what we need to do in order to achieve this goal of retiring before 40. Christina, was it always from the very first a team thing or like when Aman came home and, and hey, I want to retire before 40, what is your first thought? Yeah, my first thought was just like, okay, that's just crazy, right? <laughs> you know, it's like someone tells you, hey, we got 10 years and we're never going to work again. It's like, Hmm. Okay. But you know, one of the things that I really think help in our relationship in particular is that we are always working as a team. Whenever we have ideas and we share them with each other, the other person cannot say no. You know, it's just like, if he tells me something and say, okay, that's an interesting thought. Well, let's see, let's flush this out some more. Let's see how we can do this. Right. Because then that encourages him sharing his ideas with me and me sharing my ideas with him without this thought of it's going to be smacked down. We're not going to even try for something like that. But I will say, yeah, when he came and told me about that, it was like, oh, that's a big one. We really, really <laughs> think about how we're going to make that one happen. <laughs> you didn't even use the word interesting. You said, well, that's a right. big, that's a big idea. <laughs> yeah. Let me leave the room for a second. I'll come back. <laughs> so I'm actually curious on a real interpersonal level, like what you guys just said, it reminds me of like a, a safe place, like a no judgment zone of hey, I've got this wacky idea. In this case, it was probably the most extreme example you've heard. But but where did you guys come up with that? I think so many couples have issues communicating and they're scared, they're worried that they bring up an idea or bring up something and the spouse or significant other, it's maybe fall on deaf ears or worse. There'll be some low-level animosity or some such. And how did you guys come to that point where you could speak so honestly and you had these really no judgment zones? Well, you know, Christina and I have been together since I was 19 years old, and we met each other actually at a barbecue. It was a faculty barbecue, and they were giving away free food, and we were both there taking full advantage of the food. So we have been each other's, I guess, frugal financial soulmates from the beginning. And I think we just got lucky because ever since we've known each other, we've always had this open relationship. I mean, when you're basically getting free food, that's no judge right there. So I think from that point on, we've always had this relationship where we bring each other crazy, wacky ideas and we just get to yes, we're problem solvers. You know, if we have a problem, we don't use it as a limiting factor. We, we try to figure out how to solve it. And that's always been our position. That's that's what we teach our children. It's never about no. It's about, OK, how can we do this? And I think what helps too is that we were like that at the very beginning of our relationship too. And so when you're like that and you see the outcome of being this couple that's let's get to yes, 
and then it actually working and then being able to create this almost snowball thing where it's like, let's just brainstorm. Let's just throw out these ideas and let's, let's make these things happen. Once you have that as your core rule as a couple, then you just continue to do it and you see the success from that. And so for us, it's like, that's just how we are. That's, that's what made us. And that's what continues to allow us to thrive as a couple. So I actually want to go back. So your journey spans about a decade, right? From this big idea to the point that you're right now is just about a decade in time. And I want to start with the fact that one of the things that's very interesting to me is your journey to financial independence on the income side of the equation happened on what I think most people would consider a, a average salary. I believe I'm on as a federal worker. This was not one of those jobs where you're making several hundred thousand dollars a year. I think you were making like 60, 70,000, somewhere in that range. Christina, I think you were in school for actually a pretty decent percentage of this. So this is a family that is making, you know, a, a good income, a solid income, one that you have bandwidth, but not one of these mega incomes that you hear about where someone could just write off your story as being for the, the ultra wealthy, right? And so I'm curious when you have this big idea and you have this income that you have, what did that plan, that problem solving, let's get to yes, how to make this work, you know, what strategies were you formulating? The solution to creating more income was to leverage what we had and tap into real estate because we couldn't work more hours at our job. So we had to figure out other forms of income. So one of the things that we were looking at to be able to retire early was that we started focusing on real estate and bringing in rental income. So the first thing we put together was this idea of living in a home, flipping it and moving to the next home, this idea of living and flipping, and then using that money to be able to eventually retire off of. So that's where we started. And I would also say, you know, you had mentioned for three years, I was in law school. So we were just living off of that one salary. And so we had to even get creative about how we're living. So we, we did this video on how we lived rent and mortgage free for, you know, over 10 years. And one of the ways that we did that is at UCLA, we were resident advisors. So we lived in family housing for UCLA graduate school students, and we got free housing because we were resident advisors. So we were always trying to think of what can we do to either save money or make money in some other way other than just a on salary? Because we, we wanted to expedite this process to fire. And by being RAs, by living rent-free in that area, and then just trying to think of other side hustles, that's what really helped us expedite that process and get to fire a lot quicker because we actually thought it was going to take us 10 years and it ended up taking eight years. Yeah, certainly if you can remove your housing expense, then that is going to drastically change the equation and how far your savings are going to go and what that savings rate is going to look like. I'm curious, since it looks like you found multiple ways to live rent-free, right? I mean, you actually did multiples of these tactics from RAs to house hacking, live and flip, et cetera. How did this change as you move from Aman and Christina to Aman and Christina with two daughters? Oh yeah, that's so interesting, you know, because we did multiple ways, like you said, about how to live rent and mortgage free. And one of them was right after we graduated, we got this lease option on a three bedroom apartment and we rented out two of the bedrooms and that was pre kids. So now that we have kids, we didn't really feel like that was an option. We didn't want to rent out extra rooms in a house and have kids with us and living with strangers. So we had to think of different ways like living as RAs or 
Airbnb being a property and living in a smaller property. And then ultimately what we did is we moved abroad and we worked abroad and our employer paid for all of our housing and all of our utilities. We got it completely covered. Yeah, now this is fascinating. And because your work as a federal employee and in particular tying that to the geo arbitrage is a massive piece, both of your of your path to five, but also now where you've ended up, uh, I'd, I'd like to explore that a little bit further. So uh, Christina, I know that you were in, you just said that you were in law school, Amon, you were working for the federal government. Tell us a little bit more about your career choice and how that played into this path to financial independence. Yeah, you know, I didn't specifically pick my career choice in terms of fire. I just, for me, I was thinking of what could I do that I I found interesting. And we had been living in Spain prior to me starting law school, and I wasn't working at that time also. And I was just thinking of, you know, at some point we had this thought that we wanted to go back to the States. And I thought, what is that going to look like if we go back to the States? And that's where I started thinking, you know, I really want to go to law school. I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And the girls were five and three at the time that I started law school. And I thought this is a good, a good age for them, for me to go back to school. And so we went back to school because of my interest in it, but it really opened a lot of doors. So ultimately we moved back abroad after I graduated. We lived in the Bay Area for about two years, a little less than two years. And then Amon had been working for the federal government since he graduated from college. And this opportunity opened up for us to move to Japan. Amon got a job offer. And at the same time, there was an attorney position open at the same place in Japan. And because I had just graduated from law school, I'd been practicing for a while, we had this opportunity that opened up. And in terms of our fire journey, it just, it was perfect for us because again, we both got to move overseas this time, paid for all of our housing. And then now we're on two incomes that is going to allow us to invest more money and get to fire a lot quicker. So I'm curious actually about the the decision to go to law school. Obviously you said this was always something you had, you had thought about, but, but there is a huge cost to law school, right? Not only in terms of dollars for the actual tuition and such, but opportunity costs as well. You guys were already on this path to FI at that point. What does that discussion look like in terms of, okay, does this make sense? Sure, it was. It might have been a dream, but does this make sense for our family now? I'd, I'd love to hear both that thought process and also like the actual nuts and bolts of, wow, law school usually costs 60 grand a year. How do you work that? Yeah, you know, we did go over the numbers. And for me, we were very, very fortunate in order to have most of almost all of my law school paid for through scholarships and then just through the UCLA in general. So it didn't really have that same impact of someone who is taking out the $60,000 loans or $60,000 plus loans in order to go to law school. But it does play a role, right? I'm hustling to get these scholarships in. I'm writing all my scholarship essays. I'm getting people to write letters for me. But that is definitely a big thing that you have to take into into account. If you're going back to school and you're on this fire journey, it's the same thing, hustling, trying to figure out what scholarships can I apply for that are going to help pay for this for this law school so I'm not taking out all these loans and so that I'm still able to pursue fire in the time frame that we want to pursue it. I'll add to that because the idea of, of going back to school 
we went back to school with the purpose of Christina graduating and making more money that could support our fire journey. So yes, she was taken out of the job market, but when she came back into the market, she was making much more money. And this was money that we could put towards our financial independence goals. That was just an analysis that we ran. And in the end, it made sense for her to go back to school because of the increase in our overall income. Can we talk about that for a few minutes, multiple aspects? So one, uh, Christina, before, you know, when you were in your original job, your original role, what were you making before you made the decision to go back to law school? Before I went to law school, I was making zero. We lived in Spain and I didn't have a job. And so that sort of prompted me to think, okay, we go back to the States. What should we do? Before that, we were in Japan and I was working as a contractor and I was making about $35,000 full time. And that was as a contractor. So I didn't get any of the benefits of, you know, that free housing or utility or anything like that. The 401k match, you didn't, you didn't get a lot of those other benefits. Yeah, but I also... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. The reason I wanted to say that is what you did is remarkable. So there's an observation that many people make in that, like, once you, it's very difficult to make the choice to go back to school after you've had that space. Right. And then the fact that you were able to do that. And then two, you were able to hustle your way and get these scholarships. I really think there's something useful there because those scholarships, a lot of times are predicated on maybe activities that you've done in high school. I mean, this very kind of linear progress. So to have that space that you're then documenting to get those, I'm just curious, Mechanically, you have this space between your undergrad degree, you've been out of the workforce for a period of time, and now you're saying, I want to go back to school. And on top of that, I'm not just going to pay, just pay whatever the sticker price is. I'm going to look for a way to get that, you know, some of that covered via scholarships. And you said UCLA. How did you formulate that package? I mean, you know, at to use this word at a granular level day one, you're making the choice to go back. You've done the the ROI analysis and you make the decision. Yes, this is three years of my life, but I'm going to go from, you know, I'm not making anything now. I was making 35 before. What would it look like for me to make double that? It's probably going to be this path. You know, I understand the logic on that end. You're looking for a way to get this covered. It sounds like you did that successfully. How did you put this plan together? Well, for law school, you have to take the LSAT. So if you get a high score, you can get performance-based scholarships based off of that. So my goal when I was in Spain, I studied tremendously for the LSAT. I didn't take any extra courses that would help me, but it was like buying all these books and understanding how the LSAT test was going to, how it was going to look so that I could get the best score on the LSAT that I could. And so that definitely helped. But then also in terms of just performance, you know, for law school, I had I had taken about, I don't know, maybe 10 years of break from going from grad school, taking a long break, and then going to law school. And law schools actually look at people who have taken a long break and developed personally and socially. They actually like those things because it shows that you're going back with a purpose versus someone who just graduates from undergrad and goes straight into law school. So I had the advantage of being an older student. I also had the advantage, you know, there's a lot of scholarships that are keyed towards particular individuals. So being an older student, being a woman, being a minority, there's all these different areas that I focused on in addition to having a really high LSAT score. So getting into UCLA is like one of the top I don't know what it's ranked right now, maybe top 15 law schools in the entire nation. And being an early decision for that, I found out in 
think even November or December that I'd gotten in where people usually don't find out until several months later. So that really helped me formulate my plan, get my all of my scholarships in order to understand that, yes, I got into UCLA. Yes, I have the money to fund this. And this is something that we can achieve. Yeah, and we're always looking for these actionable tips and points of leverage, how the community can hear something. And someone out there undoubtedly is thinking about law school and just hearing that about the LSAT. So now you're the second person who's told me this, that the LSAT counts dramatically more in terms of getting scholarships for law school. So if you have an LSAT score, that the, so I, I guess it's out of 180, right? So if you're in the 170 plus range, which obviously is very difficult. But like, to your point, if that's where you spend your time, if you understand the test, if you can increase your score, just those couple of points, maybe you could get into a top five or 10 law school, but it's so competitive and those law schools want to get their rankings higher. So you're gonna be able to get almost a full ride, at least from what I've heard, from the top you know, 25 or 50 law schools, pretty much to a T. Again, you're the second person telling me this. So I'm curious, does that jive with what you've seen in in your own experience where those couple of points and spending that time, right? We're looking for leverage. Does it make sense if you're in the 165 range to spend dozens of hours to maybe get above that magical number? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think your LSAT is so incredibly important. I mean, there's other things that are important as well, but the LSAT is something that can be compared across all applicants, right? So it's so important to put the time into your LSAT. And then for us too, it was like we were living in Spain. And so the idea of getting the highest you know, LSAT score that you can get in order to get into the school that you want to go to and to find out early ahead of time. Like we, like I said, we found out in like November or December, shortly after I applied that I got into UCLA and we could really work our lives around coming from Spain and have all that time to determine what our lives are going to be like at UCLA. So that's another benefit of not only just scholarships, but really being able to prepare your life in law school and what it's going to look like because you have several, several months in order to make arrangements to make this big move for law school. So one of the interesting things when I think about your story is that you've reached financial independence and I know you're living in Portugal. We'll come back to that now, but in terms of like where you live, that's kind of a big factor in terms of calculating how much you need. And as an extension, what your number is going to be. One of the interesting things to me is that when you calculate your financial independence number, you're calculating that based on your cost of living in the Bay area. And as we know, that is an incredibly expensive place to live. And that is going to affect this number. So I'm just curious as we start to think about this latter end of your journey where you're kind of, you're, you're living this out and you're making the choice, are we going to do this here? We're going to go abroad. Like, tell us a little bit about this pursuing financial independence in this more expensive cost of living area. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because we, we get that a lot because the Bay Area is so expensive. You can really shy away from this idea of achieving financial independence when your expenses are so high. But for us, we had to be very, very creative. And I'll give you an example. When we were looking at real estate in the Bay Area, we were looking in 2013 and the market was very hot in 2013. It was very competitive. It was hard to it was hard to find a home. You would get into these bidding wars with people. So we had to come up with a with a different way of approaching our house buying process. So we talk about this in some of our YouTube videos, but we, we devised a plan 
that allowed us to go after homes that no one else was looking at. So we would look over the, over the holidays. We closed on three of our properties in the Bay Area, like either on Christmas or New Year's Eve, when no one else was looking for properties. We employed strategies like that. And then once we found a property, we would DIY and do the renovations ourselves because it was out of the question to try to hire a contractor in the San Francisco Bay Area to help us with any of our live and flips. So we did we did all the work our, ourselves and we found materials at dirt cheap prices. We have this video where we where we renovated our entire kitchen for about a thousand dollars. We knew we had this problem in front of us. How are we gonna renovate our kitchen and save money? And we just came up with it with a solution. So before you started a YouTube channel, you were leaning on YouTube to get some of these questions answered. I bet. How oh. do I do this? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, in fact, it's funny you say that because I just had a friend reach out to me. He said, this contractor wants to charge me all this money to install ceiling fans. I said, why would you have a contractor do that? You can do that yourself. You know, go to YouTube and watch a video. Absolutely. I, I'm that guy, sadly. I don't want to get electrocuted. So why would I ever think about putting a ceiling fan in? But you're absolutely right. You can learn anything. Did you guys have that skill set as far as even contemplating a live-in flip? That scares the heck out of me. Like, did you have any background in fixing up homes? Or was this just, hey, this no, is an adventure? No. no, we had absolutely no background in it. We just follow this uh you know, live and learn type of attitude. So we had this idea and we said, okay, if we do this, how's it going to work? Christina is really great at making out plans. So she devised a literally a step-by-step plan on how we could live in this home and flip it at the same time. And we just followed that plan. Things that we couldn't do ourselves, of course, we subcontracted out, but whatever we could do ourselves to save money, we did. And I think, you know, Aman has this confidence too, because he says, you know, you can learn anything on YouTube. Look up how to remove a tabletop. Look at how to install a sink. You know, these things he has this, this brain for, and he has the confidence that, you know, we can do this. It's not that hard. So it's almost like me making the plan and him saying, oh, this is exactly how we do it. We do this, we do this, we go to the store and we buy this. It's sort of like a combination of two things that we're both each good at and then combining it into one thing to really make it work. I love that. It sounds like such an amazing team. This is really more than a team though, right? This is a family. You have two young daughters and I'd love to hear what they think about this live-in flip scenario. Do people look at you and say, oh, how can you do that with two young kids? To me, this sounds like an adventure, but I'm sure you get some pushback. Yeah, you know, we haven't had any pushback in terms of the flips. I actually love doing the flips and bringing the girls in and then being able to see this process. I think more as a woman, I love showing our girls this because not to get on a tangent or anything, but typically people think that doing construction or working on a home is more for this the the male side. And, and it, it can be the same thing for even investing. You know, there's this concept that men are better at investing than women for whatever reason. There's this stereotype. So the fact that we have two young girls and we're able to bring them on this journey with us, we get to show them how we're flipping the house. They get to see the before, the during, the after. They get to see how we're doing this in terms of real estate, but also how we're doing it in terms of our real estate portfolio, talking to them about how we're generating money, how our portfolio is generating money, investing money for them and them seeing their portfolio grow. I just love that 
we get to show two girls this at such an early stage. And we haven't had any pushback in terms of them learning these things. I think it's just been a great experience. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you guys a little bit more about uh, when you're actually doing these DIY projects yourself. I had two questions, actually. One, Aman, was there ever a question that you were furious that you couldn't find an answer to and you had to finally give up and bring a contractor? And like, what was that? Oh, my goodness. In the Bay Area, there is a tool lending library. It's kind of like a club. Anyway, you can go to the library and there are a bunch of uh, DIY enthusiasts at this tool lending library and you can ask them questions. I think I struggled with installing a sink one time and I went to this place and I just hung out, right? Just hanging out, talking to people and I'm presenting this problem to everyone. And I found a solution just by being around these other DIY enthusiasts. So Yes, I would get challenged, but there are so many resources out there that if you can't find it on YouTube, I would go hang out at Home Depot. I would go hang out at the DIY shops. I was always able to find an answer. So I guess that comes with being frugal, right? We see like, wait, if we pay someone to put this sink in, what is that going to cost us? It's like, let's just figure out how to do this. But there's other things, you know, like if there's something that requires a wall being taken down, we're not like, hey, we sh- we can do this ourselves. You know, we'll, we'll pay a, a contractor to do those things. But if they're just pretty much any other thing that you can think of in a house is like, we can figure out how to do this because we have received cost estimates before on how much it would cost to do everything throughout the house that we wanted to, or the properties that we wanted to. And just seeing that cost estimate for us is like, we are not giving up. We're going to figure out how to do this. (laughs) Have you seen that itemized breakdown? That is crazy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we had a cost to dispose of uh, the debris from our kitchen that was $1,000 just to take it to the dump. Boy, I rented a U-Haul and loaded everything up and and did it myself. It was only like a hundred bucks. So Yes, my frugalness is a great inspiration for a lot of what we did. Well, you may have given us a little bit of insight, but I wanted to come back to that. Two things. Uh, the one was actually the cost of acquisition. So you said we were able to renovate our kitchen for dirt cheap, but I feel like every single time that I personally take on a project, there's a new tool that I'm going to need for this job, right? A tool that you're going to use once. And I'm curious, you mentioned the tool lending library. I've, I've never heard of that before. It's a concept that seems familiar to me. I'm just curious as a frugal person, you want to go redo the bathroom floor, but you're going to need a tile saw. You want to redo the kitchen or, but you're going to need some sort of air painter or whatever. You come up with the tool of your choice, depending on the project. How does a person that's looking to do the work, you're willing to insource the work, but you don't want to invest thousands of dollars into the contractor equipment you would need for this, that you're going to use for this, maybe one or two projects. And then you're just going to be responsible for storing it. How did you engage with that? Well, fortunately we, in the Bay area, they have the tool lending library where you can go and you can borrow a tool for basically any particular job. I was able to discover that early on. We started out going down that path of actually buying all of the tools. And even when you run that analysis, buying the tools, is it's still cheaper than hiring a contractor. So that's something that we would have had to take into account. But we were very fortunate that our community had a tool lending library. And, you know, this is this is a network that you that if you don't have in your your own community, you can create something like this. I mean, I wouldn't be too shy to go to my neighbor and ask him for a hammer. And if he happens to have a, a tile cutter, I'll, I'll ask him for that too. But if you create a community of people that are also interested in doing this, you can start it yourself. Well, I will be clear too. We did own hammers, <laughs> but this tool lending library had like all these major tools. Like you said, like 
if you only use them once, you don't want to go out and buy this brand new tool that you use once. But we were so fortunate that they had all these major tools at the library that we went to, and they had several of them. So we weren't sitting around waiting for someone to return something in order to get it. But there's also several sites like you go to you can go to Craigslist. There's a site called freecycle.org where you can get free things from people in the community. There's all these avenues that you don't have to buy. Even if you don't have a tool lending library like we did, you don't have to buy something brand new. And a lot of times if people buy something just to use once, they might rent it out or they might sell it at a loss in order to just get rid of it and recoup some of that money. So it's really just thinking creatively as to how you can work on this project and save money on the cost of tools. Yeah, this is cool. I'd never heard of these tool lending libraries before, but I just Googled it while while we were talking about it. And do we looks, have one here in Richmond? We actually do. <laughs> yeah. So of course, yeah, it's amazing. Jonathan's gonna live there now at this point. <laughs> it's also <laughs> the, a great place you can go ask questions, I yeah, bet too, right? No, you certainly could. But yeah, it looks like there's a website, localtools.org, that has an entire map of the world here of these tool lending libraries. And yeah, we've got a RVA tool library for Richmond. So yeah, very, very cool. That thank is so nice. cool. Thank you guys. <laughs> yeah, Great. Thank you. <laughs> so your travels, both through work and through your own personal adventures have taken you all over the world and you've been to Spain, Italy, Portugal, France, Singapore, Thailand, Japan, maybe more. And I'm curious, that is not inexpensive, right? The sticker price to take these plane trips for a family of four would break the bank for most people and certainly slow down their path to financial independence. I know that here at Choose If I were huge fans of travel rewards, but I'm curious for you guys, what tactics and strategies did you employ to be able to take these amazing adventures as a family, solve that problem without breaking the bank? Oh, by far it is travel rewards. I don't know how we stumbled across this concept but it has been a game changer, especially when you're on this path towards financial independence and you're trying to be frugal. A vacation can break the bank sometime. So for us to be able to discover travel rewards and be able to leverage that on our journey, it really made our path a very fun adventure because we have traveled to so many places by taking advantage of those bonus points. You know, meeting the minimum spends and then using the bonus that comes along with that to plan our next trip. And we had to be very strategic. So all those places that you mentioned, we had to plan those out, you know, months, sometimes a year in advance and put together our rewards lineup to be able to support those trips. But I will say also, you know, travel rewards is, is such an incredible find for us, you know, mm -hmm. especially as a family of four. So if you think just one person, you know, how much it can save, think about a family of four going on an international trip anywhere. The cost associated with a flight and hotel alone could pretty much break the bank. But the idea that we can do travel rewards and have our entire family of four get free flights and free hotel is just it's just an incredible game changer because we always love to travel, but we didn't like the expense associated with it. So we'd either limit our travel or we'd try and pick places that would fit within the budget. But with travel rewards, it just opened up this whole new window for us in terms of traveling. Yeah, that's awesome. This has been a game changer for my entire life, certainly. And we actually have a, a free travel rewards course here at Chooseify at chooseify.com slash travel. And one thing that I want to ask about, as far as families go, travel rewards for families, especially a family of four, I know a lot of people have difficulty finding four award flights. Did you have any strategies? For me, I usually advise people, be flexible. 
be flexible in terms of any little bit you can build into this. If you want to be flexible with timing, that's usually the biggest aspect. Hey, we want to go to Japan next fall. Well, that's a whole heck of a lot easier than we need to go to Japan on October 10th and come home on the 17th. That's some aspect of it in terms of destinations. We want to go to Europe, not we need to go to Brussels and then Rome and then, you know, Paris. I'm curious, how did you guys approach travel rewards mentally for a family of four, knowing that it is sometimes difficult to get four award flights using points? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely flexibility is key. And I'll give you an example, too, because the last winter, we went to Spain, we went to Italy and France, all in sort of a round trip type of vacation. And we used points for that. But in terms of flexibility, it was like, okay, should which place should we fly into first? Where can we get the best deal in terms of our rewards? Should we go to Italy first or France or Spain? Or how does that look? And it's definitely about flexibility. And, you know, I'd even say like, if you have a trip plan, say you want to take two trips during the year, that's flexibility also, because maybe going to Europe the first at the beginning of the year and Asia in the middle of the year doesn't make sense. And you can swap it around because you're more flexible in terms of where you can go. Then you can use your rewards points that way. I want to talk about actually hitting your number and pulling out of your cubicle, right, Amon? So you've been in this cubicle environment and you're, you're walking away. I'm just curious about that interaction with your employer, you know, as you're walking, if there was anything there, what was it like to take that retreat? And I feel like I see so many people in the, uh, it, in particular, in like more of the mainstream media now talking about the downside of retiring. What does that feel like for you is this turned out to be this horrible decision for your life and it's full of regret. So just like help frame us, you're walking away, what those conversations were now that maybe do you have this lack of identity? Just help us place our audience with that inflection point in your life. You know, when we were planning our announcement, our early retirement announcement, and we were going to tell our employers, we, we actually had built this up in our mind, you know, as like this very, exciting and we were going to walk in the offices and tell people we're out of here and all this stuff like that. But you know what? We really liked the people that we worked with. So we didn't go into work with this idea that we were going to tell them off and leave in a blaze of glory. <laughs> we felt really bad going into work because we liked the people there and we believed in, in what we did. But our lives were more than just our federal jobs. I mean, we were foregoing a lot of things that we like to do as far as our passion projects. So when we went into work and we told people, they were completely shocked. And then the next question they had was like, well, what are you going to do with the next 30 years of your life? For me, I think that was a very odd question because it was almost like they were saying that this job was supposed to define the next 30 years of my life. But the next 30 years of my life, what I'm going to do next is redefine it. We're going to define it on our own terms. And so moving to Portugal that's all a part of this new journey that we're on. We're redefining our lives. We are starting a brand new journey. Aman, I love the quote, our lives were more than our jobs. Isn't that astounding that you come in, you've done this remarkable thing. And I mean, people aren't asking you, how did you do it? How can I follow? How can I do something similar? The question is, 
what the heck are you going to do with your life? Right? You're not going to get your 40-year certificate, Amon. <laughs> <Right? laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> life goals, right? Well, I think it has to go back to the idea that fire is so unique that not a lot of people have heard about it. I mean, more people are hearing about it, but when you tell someone, hey, I'm 39 years old and I'm never going to work another day in my life, people are like, well, what are you going to do? Like, it's sort of, like I said, at the very beginning, when we started talking, when Amon told me he wanted to retire at 40, it was like, oh, this is bizarre, but let's see how we can do it. But other people who have never heard of fire that haven't worked out all the steps in order to achieve financial independence and retire early, they just stop at the, oh, that's bizarre. They don't, they don't go any further. It's just like, you're, you're not going to have anything else to do for the rest of your life, you know? But part of FIRE is really understanding how you can achieve FIRE, how your investments can support you in early retirement, and also considering what are the things that you're going to do in early retirement. Like our goal wasn't just to retire early and like sleep on the couch all day and, you know, eat ding-dongs or whatever. They don't even have ding-dongs ding I was actually going to ask, Portugal. what is a ding-dong? Can we get a visual representation here? <laughs> <laughs> Corn curls, cheese puffs, Cheetos, what are we talking about? There you go, right? But I mean, it's like having this idea too of we knew what we wanted our life to be like in early retirement. We wanted to spend more time with our girls. Every day we get to get up early. We don't sleep in late. We get up by seven in the morning. We make breakfast for the girls. We walk them to school. Every day we get to work out now, which was not part of our daily routine. At least it definitely wasn't for me when we were working because it was like, I'm so tired at the end of the day when I'm working. And then we want to spend time with the kids at the end of the day when we're working. So it's all these different things that we we get to do now that we're retired that wanted us to make this move to retire early. And so people are asking us, what would we do? It's like, we'll do everything. We'll do whatever we want. Yeah. I mean, you have the entire world, right? And you have financial resources. It's so absurdly limiting that people wonder, what are you going to do with your time? I get to exactly. explore. I get to learn. I get to be a better person. Like you said, you're, we're defining life on our own terms. What a great quote that is. And I, I think just, the counterpoint is, and this is what I feel like I see, I see an aspect of this in my own life. I wouldn't be surprised if you say this, but you get just a little bit of space and you're like, how did I ever have time for a nine to five? Oh my goodness. That is the truth. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's like, we'll never go back to that. <laughs> Let's talk about where you guys landed. So you hit your fine number in, in terms of what it would cost you to stay in the Bay Area, but you landed in Portugal. And we just talked about all these places that you traveled to. Why Portugal? Why is that where your current landing pad is? Oh, well, Portugal, uh, it just kept coming back up. So when we talk about our financial independence number, we had set it for the cost of living in the highest location that we were considering, which was the San Francisco Bay Area. So all we were while we were on this journey, we were going through all these different locations that we could retire to early. Like when we hit Thailand, we're like, oh, we could retire now in Thailand. But no, let's let's stay focused. We want to we want to set it for the highest point so that when we do retire, we're not stuck at maybe the lowest point location that, that our fire number was based off of. But as we were doing research and as we were traveling the world, Portugal just kept coming back up. I mean, when we looked at healthcare, when we looked at crime, when we looked at just overall quality of life, Portugal is by far the best location. Yeah, that's awesome. You guys have a video, top 10 reasons why we retired in Portugal. And I absolutely love that. And Aman, I love the Star Wars shirt, by the way. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, living somewhere abroad with a family, a lot of people 
get nervous. Oh, is this going to be the right move for my kids? Are they going to fit in? How are they going to learn the language? I'd love to hear how your girls have adapted to living in an entirely new and foreign country. Yeah, I mean, our girls adapt so well. And we'd lived abroad in Japan, and we've also lived abroad in Spain. So this isn't their first time abroad. But even for families that are considering moving abroad for the first time, children adapt so well. Like our girls are going to a private Portuguese school. So it's a smaller size school. And it's taught in Portuguese, but all of their teachers also speak English. So their teachers are speaking to them, helping them learn Portuguese and speaking to them in English and Portuguese. So they're adapting really well in terms of the language and they're learning the language a lot quicker than us. But our girls are also heavily involved in sports. So our oldest daughter plays basketball. And our youngest daughter is a swimmer and we've already got them on very competitive teams. So they're already making friends at school, of course, and then through their sports as well. It's like they haven't even skipped a beat. They are doing so well. And our oldest daughter just came back last week from a field trip that she got to go to Spain. I mean, it's just all these opportunities to meet new people, to learn about a different culture. And the girls are only 11 and 13 years old. So we love that they're getting this experience. How are you two prioritizing learning the language? Your kids are in school. They are total immersion, but you don't have to go to a job. You aren't relying on particular vendors. You can outsource or automate the vast majority of the things that would force you to be immersed, especially when that is probably uncomfortable because you don't know the language. How do you prioritize that immersion experience? Well, it's been a really high priority for us. I will say, unfortunately, I am the slowest learner in the family. (laughs) I mean, My girls are dreaming in Portuguese, and I can barely get out a couple of words. I go to a class for two hours a day, three times a week. Uh, We also have a private tutor. And, you know, we don't live in a tourist part of Portugal. We try to be immersed in the culture. And so we do have uh, a, a lot of interactions in Portuguese. So it forces us to learn the language. I mean, Portugal is a very amazing country because the people here are so patient with you. You know, they will work with you. If you're just trying, they will help you out. And we've gotten in situations where we are stuck and there would be someone that we're not even dealing with. It it would be someone off to the side that speaks English as well. And they'll come over and help us in the situation and say, you know what, let me be your translator. Let me help you set up your, your cell phone or get through this particular issue. So, Learning the language in Portugal, we we couldn't have picked a better country to learn it. Unfortunately, Portuguese is really hard, but we'll get there. I mean, it is hard, but I'll give you an example. We went to go get coffee the other day and we're like, we're going to do this in Portuguese, no English. And we went in there and we ordered it in in Portuguese and then we didn't have enough sugar. So Oman said, oh, I got to ask if if they have more sugar. And so the way he said it, though, was I have more sugar (laughs) and she got it. She's like, yeah, here's some more sugar. And then she spoke English too. So he said, how did I do? And she said, well, you're supposed to say, do you have more sugar? Not I have more sugar. (laughs) And she told us how to say it. And, and, you know, it's just trial and error. It's just making sure that we practice. I love this. And let me just tell you in terms of, you said, you know, this idea of financial independence and retire early, you know, not a lot of people have even heard about it. You guys are doing massive and a massive effort to actually spread this idea. I want to talk about your YouTube channel just for a second here. Our rich journey, the stated goal of your channel to document the unique ways that you as a couple and your family that you save, you make and invest money. 
And within a year of starting your channel, over 50,000 people have subscribed to your channel. And that was when I originally heard about you guys and was starting to check it out. Since then, in the last like two months, that has been doubled. I think you have over 100,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel, well past 2 million views at this point on YouTube. It's incredible. And I think at its core, it's because you're authentic. You're actually living this out. And I think if you go back to the beginning of your story where you guys came together, you had this big idea, you had this plan and you're like, it's a, wow, it's a big idea. I got to go in the other room. But after you get a chance to think about it, you start formulating it. And once you formulate that and then it actually works, I think this is the thing. You guys reach financial independence and now you're talking about how you did it. And you're, why would you not do that? This is incredible. Nobody else that you know has done this. You created a plan and it worked. It would be criminal not to tell everybody that you know personally and anybody that's interested about it. I love what you're doing with the channel. I think our audience is going to love this as well. What's been the most surprising part about having this channel to share your story? And yeah, just give our audience a little sense about what you guys are doing at Our Rich Journey. Oh gosh, I think the most surprising part is probably how well it's taken. Like you said, to have over 100,000 subscribers to us is just like, wow, that's, I mean, something about our story is really resonating with people. But what we really like also is the interaction that we get. I mean, we live here in Lisbon and people are reaching out to us saying, hey, we're going to be in Lisbon next week. Do you want to meet up with us? We're meeting up with someone next uh, tomorrow. We're meeting up with someone else next week. And it's all because of having this channel. I mean, people that we wouldn't ever get to communicate with were able to do this because we've created this channel. Yeah. And, you know, this is happening often. We are running into people in the streets that are from all over the world. Just the other day, we ran into someone from Germany and he's like, I watch your channel. And now I'm saving 50% of my income. And we were just like, wow, this guy was 24 years old and he was in the military. And we were just amazed. People, I think it's something about visual learning. When people can see you doing something and see that example on a screen, I think it resonates with people. And so people that are watching our journey, they see us open up our bank accounts. They see how we invest. They see how we renovate homes it really resonates with people. And they think to themselves, if those two can do it, I can do it. Mm. Awesome. Well, I tell you, I'm inspired by you guys. I hope that everybody listening to this goes and subscribes to your channel. I, I think it's well worth their time. And while on most shows, that would be the end of the episode, Aman and Christina on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Ah, oh, we're ready. Oh, yes. <laughs> the infamous hot seat. Infamous oh. hot seat. <laughs> In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. Right. Question number one, what is your favorite blog, podcast, or book of all time? I think our favorite podcast of all time, other than you guys' yeah. podcast, is definitely Planet Money. We love the stories that they have on Planet Money. You know, it's a fun way of talking about money. It's interesting. And I just get a kick out of it. Actually, I believe I was listening to a Planet Money. It was an economics episode, and it was talking about how septic systems in a Middle Eastern country had transformed. It was, it was really beyond. Yeah, sometimes Planet Money has some very interesting, yes. very interesting <laughs> episodes. I occasionally check it. All right, Jonathan down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yep, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is why we can't have linear conversations. Okay. Uh, question number two, an inflection point in your life that was especially memorable or meaningful. Oh, that's a good one. I think the most meaningful thing that we did was the first time we decided to move abroad and to live and work abroad. So that was in Spain. That was before we even had kids. But I think at that point, it really opened the door. And like I said, we talk about these points in our lives where we could have just said, no, we're not going to do something or yeah, let's go ahead and see where this takes us. And by moving abroad to Spain, it opened so many more doors. We lived in Japan and then we ultimately decided we could live in Portugal because we've already lived abroad and had that experience. Do you think Portugal is your forever home? Like, do you guys have a, a timeline for how long you anticipate being there? I think that it is our forever home, although that's with a caveat. So I think we, there may be a time where we go back to the States for maybe four years, and it's so contingent on our girls, because if they decide that they want to go back and they want to go to college in the States, for example, like our oldest one is talking about, she wants to go to Stanford, which if she goes there, if our older, if our younger daughter also goes to school in California, then we might decide to go back to the States for a couple years and be closer to them and then I'll travel back to Portugal again. But that again goes back to that point of choosing a FI at a, a fire number at a place that you can live. And ultimately, if, if the girls go back to the States and go back to California, we're not limited because we decided to choose a fire number based off of living in the Bay Area. Yeah, that gives you so much flexibility, right? I mean, you quite literally picked one of the most expensive places in the entire world as to base your fine number off of. So you have this flexibility, right? I mean, I can only imagine the fraction of the amount you're spending in Portugal as opposed to the Bay Area. So, well, wait, even more than that, Brad, I mean, just, just for our audience who may not have made that connection, if you have a fine number that's based on one thing and you're roughly considering this 4% safe withdrawal rate, and then you end up in a place that requires a fraction of that, I mean, that dramatically changes the numbers at this inflection point where you might then go back to this higher cost of living area. So your your safe withdrawal rate currently, I'm just curious, like, are you guys, are you using a 4% safe withdrawal rate currently? Like, what are you doing? No, we're under 4%, which is great because, you know, the more that can stay in our investment accounts and grow and the greater the likelihood that we're never going to run out of money, right? Because the Trinity study is, is where this 4% rule is, where everyone talks about this 4% rule. And the idea is that if you draw 4% from your investment portfolio, for example, you'll have a strong likelihood of never running out of money. But if you're able to draw even less than 4%, that likelihood of running out of money becomes, I mean, it's even stronger for us in terms of never being able to run out of money because we're drawing less than that 4%. So living in Portugal is great for us. And at the same time, we could always go back to California and live there as well. I'm so glad, Christina, that you actually took a second to explain 4% rule. So we're not just dropping jargon on people, but for individuals that want more of that, an episode, I believe we just checked episode 35 of our podcast. We talked with big earn from early retirement. Now we did a deep dive in that. And, and to add just an extra tidbit onto that Trinity study, it's kind of interesting. So when we talk about the Trinity studies looking at whether or not you're going to run out of money over like a 30 year period of time, but regardless of that, they're looking at failure or success, right? But the crazy thing is like picking this absolute number to rely on, like it's either you run out of money or the other alternatives, you end up with double or triple what you need at the end. It's something absurd. These tiny little things that happen, you know, can send these two numbers in drastically different directions. 
if you are able to control your expenses in any way due to geo arbitrage or being able to scale down and up, if you can affect these first few years, these first five years of drawing down in any significant way by taking out less than you really need, it's actually insane what that does to your future net worth projections. So I tell you what, that did not do it justice in terms of really explaining for people what they need to understand. If you want to understand more about safe withdrawal rates, go listen to episode 35 of the podcast for more. And I think you guys have a episode possibly on that as well that we can link up in the show notes as, uh, for, for additional information. All right, let's move on to question number three, your favorite life hack. I think our favorite life hack, I would say, was living rent and mortgage free. Because if you think about it, if you look at your expenses, your expenses can take up maybe, I mean, for living, your housing expenses can take up maybe 30% of your overall budget. And if you find a way to live rent and mortgage free, you can actually just take that 30% that you normally be spending on housing and start investing it. And for us, it was a, a huge game changer to be able to not only do this, but to do this for more than 10 years and to do this in multiple different ways, just finding ways to live rent and mortgage free, and then taking all of our extra money and investing that. That's amazing. So it was 10 plus years that you lived rent and mortgage free. Yeah. Nice. And they were all different ways too. I mean, we talked about earlier about this idea having kids and there's some things that we did earlier in terms of living rent and mortgage free, like getting roommates to pay for the, our housing that we wouldn't necessarily do at this stage in our lives, but we did all different types of things and you can do it as a family or you can do it as a couple or a single individual, but there's all these different ways to create this savings that you can then use to invest because that's what it's all about. You know, fire is about finding ways to save more money and finding ways to make more money. And when you can make huge drastic cuts in your expenses or in, in your budget, that only helps to get you towards fire a lot quicker. Yeah. What I love about your story in terms of the earn more and make more just relatable for people, like you're not limited to just one, like you guys first, when you started out, it was all about slashing your expenses and you kind of had this just slightly above median income. And then towards the end, all these investments that you made, recognizing you're not just limited to spend less, you know, you're talking about making more, this decision to go back to college, it didn't pay off right away. But at some point you guys were able to crack that six figure income mark for that last few years of your journey. And you were able to also impact the earn more side. You don't have to just pick one. You don't not locked into one strategy. You can take a balanced approach and where you are one at this snapshot, this moment in time is not where you're going to be five years from now, eight years from now, if you're paying attention and you're building a plan for it. So I think your story really encapsulates the heart of that. All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Oh my goodness. It had to be our BMW X5. It's it's a BMW SUV. Buying that was definitely our biggest mistake. It, and this was this was before we got intentional about financial independence and we were we had a little bit of money and so we wanted to showcase that and it was just it was just a bad thing. Not only was the car expensive, but the maintenance was also expensive. I mean, an oil change was like $150. New tires were like $1000. There was it was just a snowball of of bad decisions buying that car. This episode brought to you by Honda Civic. Honda <laughs> Civic, it's where it's <laughs> All right, question number 5, the advice you would give your younger self. Create your goals. You know, create what you want in the future and have that in mind. So when we were younger, we were saving, we did some investments, we did our retirement accounts, we got into real estate, but it wasn't really with a purpose. So 
we retired. I'm almost 39. I'm 41 when we retired. And I think at our younger selves, if we would have had this intentional goal of retiring at whatever age, maybe when we were younger saying we want to retire by 30 or by 35 or whatever year it was or whatever age it was, if we had this goal in mind, I think that we would have taken more intentional steps in order to get there and we could have gotten there even sooner. All right, guys, we do have a bonus question. What is the purchase you've made over, let's say, the last 12 months or so that has added the most value to your life? And I say this with the caveat that I've watched your amazing video on your minimalist home in Portugal. So I don't know if there is an answer here, but I'd love to hear. Well, you talk about travel rewards, right? So (laughs) I think our best purchase was, this might sound a little funny, but it is getting our tickets to fly here to move and retire in Portugal. I mean, we love this place. It has been by far the best decision we've made. And we're so happy that we are here in early retirement and we're living in Lisbon. So I'd have to definitely say the best purchase are those tickets to fly us here to Lisbon. You know, and I have a feeling after listening to this episode, our audience is living that with you. Maybe this is the episode that sparks them just to be a little bit more creative. Like maybe at this point, you've never even considered moving out of your zip code, you know, maybe anchoring yourself to this idea that you can live anywhere in the world. And if you want it to be your zip code, great. But but why? Just think through that. I mean, maybe there are other places that could provide incredible benefits to you and your family and would be wonderful places to live. I know our audience is going to be desperate to find out more about your story and connect with you guys. What is the best way someone's listening to this? They just want to go through and find out the steps you took to get where you are now. What's the best way for people to find out more? Yeah. So we share all of that ways that we make money, invest money and save money all on our YouTube channel called our rich journey. And then we also have an active Instagram account also, and you can find us on Instagram at rich journey. Amana, Christina, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having us. It was great. All right, guys, if you're listening to this episode, if you've been getting value from the show, obviously subscribe if you haven't already, but tying it back to this, this episode, Amana, Christina actually said in this, how, what a big part of their journey travel rewards was, how it allowed them to travel the world for nearly free. If you're curious about that, you could definitely listen to episode nine of our podcast where we kind of unrolled at the time what we were doing, or honestly, at this point, a great way to learn exactly how to implement a travel reward strategy that will allow you to follow and go to some of these countries that they mentioned, just go to choosefi.com slash travel. All of the information is right there. It's a free course that actually walks you through step-by-step exactly what to do to be able to travel for yourself, your family, your friends. Like, honestly, this is probably the easiest way to get started on your travel rewards journey. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.